From Southern California, this is Outlook in Review, a summary of world headlines, technology and business news, arts and entertainment features, and instructive encouragement from the Praiselite Media Studios, Thousand Oaks, California. Good night, Wednesday, the 16th of January, 2019. A terrorist attack in the mid-afternoon on Tuesday in Nairobi, Kenya, has left at least 15 people dead in an office complex and hotel in the country's capital. According to NTV Kenya, at least 30 people were injured. Terrorist group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility. Authorities have confirmed that they do not know how many attackers there were, but CCTV footage appears to show at least four different terrorists involved. Late on Tuesday evening, Kenya's interior minister said that all buildings at the scene have been secured with scores of people evacuated after the siege. According to the BBC News, at least two blasts and gunfire were heard at the compound in the Westland district of the city, which houses the Ducid Hotel as well as offices. It is the second time in six years that Al-Shabaab has launched a major attack on Nairobi. After less than two years, Whole Foods Market plans to discontinue their Whole Foods 365 store format. The first Whole Foods 365 store opened in May of 2016 in Silver Lake, California. The concept was billed as having lower prices than the typical Whole Foods, as well as a more local flavor. This according to Supermarket News, which stated that the stores will be integrated into the retailer's current regional structure, and the company is working to place all employees in new roles. Whole Foods states that over the years the prices have been going down in their stores so that the difference between the 365 stores was neutralizing, making a separate low price brand not necessary. The stores were also conceived before the Amazon acquisition of the higher priced health food chain and it's likely that here on out the company will be focusing more on the cashierless Amazon Go rollout. Noted American author Ralph Owen Moody was born in 1898 in East Rochester, New Hampshire. But when he was just eight years old, the entire Moody family moved to Littleton, Colorado for his father's health. In the first of his autobiographical book series, Little Britches, Ralph Moody detailed the life there and illustrated the ups and downs of American ranch life in the early 20th century. From everything from family picnics to irrigation wars, tornadoes to broken bones, Ralph's young life was filled with adventure until age 11 when tragedy struck and his father, Charles Moody, passed away from tuberculosis. Ralph used all he had learned from his father and others to assume the duties of man of the family. In his same titled book, and together with his sister Grace, they combined ingenuity with hard work in a variety of odd jobs, including starting a street baking business to help their mother provide for their large family. Ralph went to work on a ranch one summer to earn extra money and his book The Home Ranch details how it was there that he began learning trick riding, a horseback riding skill that he would use later in life. 
Just as Ralph was becoming quite settled in the West and his adventurous lifestyle was beginning to morph into routine, the entire family was uprooted in 1912 when an acquaintance of the family was accused of a crime and Ralph's mother, Mary Emma, was subpoenaed to testify against him. Believing him to be innocent, the Moody's left Colorado to avoid the trial and moved to Boston, Massachusetts. As accounted in his book Mary Emma and Company, life could hardly be more different in Boston and Ralph, accustomed to the free-roaming ways of the West, found himself in trouble often. And so, to avoid harsh Bostonian laws against underage infractions, he was sent to live with his grandfather, Thomas Gould, in Lisbon, Maine. For the majority of his book, The Fields of Home, Ralph and his grandfather butted heads on just about every method of farming, living, and communicating. Ralph, with his more modern and western mindset, felt that certain methods were obvious or improvements on the old ways. But Thomas Gould was comfortable in the New England ways and traditions and found Ralph to be just a general nuisance although, as family, he cared for him. Towards the end of the book, however, the two began to recognize each other's passions and soften towards one another. Ralph Moody may have continued to live in Maine through much of his teenage life, but it's not clear as the rest of his stories resume when he is several years older and living, once again, as we'll find out next time, back in the Western United States. Last time we talked about the content of our thoughts, and therefore our speech, as what is in our thoughts will manifest itself in what we speak about. We talked about avoiding idols and making Christ always our first and foremost obsession. But there's another aspect of the truth found in Matthew 12, and this is how our speech is to be seasoned. Matthew 12 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But if our heart is filled with irreverent humor, godless music and entertainment, even foolish conversations, these views, these words and attitudes, this humor, these distractions away from Christ-exalting outlooks will pour out from our minds into our speech and into the ears of others. We are, when we fill our minds with godless things, preaching, in effect, the so-called gospel of the world to others. However, being offended by and refusing to take part in today's crude and irreverent behavior or language leaves us open all too often to ridicule and hatred by others. But we must always remember that the Bible is to be the Christian's reference for living, and this type of conversation and language is well addressed in Scripture. As Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We see in today's society, now perhaps more than ever before, the complete lack of godly speech evidenced, among other things, by the total lack of respect attributed to those who follow Christ, his principles, and even Christ himself. Some today will try to argue that the Bible doesn't actually have anything to say about the words that we use, the offensive language now heard in every corner of the earth, and not just on the tongues of sailors and bar patrons. They claim that the avoidance of such language is just a carryover from previous prudish generations and traditions. But these claims cannot stand up to the Word of God, the fact that it tells us that our speech should be giving grace to those who hear. 
Matthew 12 tells us that we will all one day give account for every single careless word that we speak. So do we, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, encourage one another and build one another up? Do we fill our minds with the Word of God, which according to 2 Timothy 3 is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? Does every word that we speak edify others, glorify God, and give grace to those that heard it? Applying that guideline to everything that we say would clean up a lot more than just crude language or coarse jokes. May we pray as the psalmist in Psalm 141, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And may we as believers in Jesus Christ always, as Ephesians 5 says, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Outlook in Review. Contact us anytime with questions or comments. We'd always love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Outlook in Review and Facebook.com forward slash Outlook in Review, where you can find information to various topics we cover on the show. Until next time from Thousand Oaks, California, I'm Ben Ditzel. This is Outlook in Review. Outlook in Review.